Hey there, my fellow fans. This is James, and welcome to Random Fandom. Happy New Year? I think it's a little late to say that. We're already several weeks into this wacky year, and so much has happened already. Uh, I know it's been a long time since our last episode. I really apologize for that. Derek and I are both in industries that are just full-on busy right now. A lot of people need and are demanding entertainment. To that end, I think uh, I should probably focus a little bit more on this podcast. Because we started it in order to encourage and motivate and inspire people in their art in the midst of lockdowns. Uh, Speaking of lockdowns, we've just locked down again here in Tokyo I'm stuck at home with some screaming kids in the background, so if you hear that, you'll know what it is. Uh, I think this is probably take 726 of this intro, but I'm just going to go with it, because you know, hey, there it is. Today, we get to talk to Mr. Nick Maley. Now, Derek and I recorded this several months back, as you know, most of our interviews have been, but today's talk is a talk that kind of endures for a long time. Mr. Maley's work has endured for a very long time, and it will continue to do so. If you don't know who he is, you might know him as That Yoda Guy. Mr. Maley worked with Stuart Freeborn and uh, Frank Oz and his team, George Lucas, on creating Yoda in the original Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. And when I was growing up, Yoda, I didn't think of him as a puppet. He's very real to me and had such an impact on my life that... It's very inspiring and just awe-inspiring, kind of breathtaking, in fact, to think that the things that we can make with our hands can come to such life that they really can change a person's life. Like when I saw Yoda on screen, I thought, there are aliens out there. You know, I mean, I was seven, you know, but what I mean is, he was so real to me that I think from that minute, I knew what I wanted to do in life. And it really, uh, your artwork can move and motivate people to such extremes that I don't think we ever really realize the impact that we have on other people. And Derek and I, we, we love you guys. We want everybody to be able to share and express themselves in ways that are, whether it's moving simply to your own children or to your neighbor, to your partner, whoever it may be, it is important. In, you know, these really dark times when everybody's so afraid of getting sick or uh, whatever else is out in the world, our internal uh, mechanisms, our hearts, really need to be shared. And art is still, I think, one of the best ways to do that. So we want to encourage you guys to continue making great art and continue to do all this fantastic stuff. <laughs> My kids are in the background. So uh, at any rate... Uh, let's get on with it. Uh, today, that Yoda guy, Mr. Nick Maley. Enjoy. Welcome. This is Random Fandom. I'm James, Derek, and we are honored this week to have a fantastic guest, 
Mr. Nick Maley. Sir, how are you? I'm good. It's how good to you? see you. Doing yeah. well. It, it's a pleasure, sir. Uh, like I said, I, I've followed your progress uh, to try to bring back the Yoda puppet and, you know, to, to its full glory of what it was. I mean, I think most people will agree that was a game changer for a puppet performance uh, for everyone, you know, and magic happened from the design to the build, to the costume, to the performer, everything coming together, so. Yeah, well, um, you know, Yoda was the world's first animatronic superstar, you know. <laughs> he, he was maybe two years before Dark Crystal and uh, Labyrinth uh, when we had, you know, puppet performers, but we, you know, we didn't have any of that um, at the time. And everyone was worried. Um, Kirsch actually said that Yoda scared him uh, because he, he feared that, you know, he would put this thing into a major motion picture, uh, spend millions of dollars and everyone would laugh at it because it was basically a Muppet in the middle of a movie. Um, what, it didn't look uh, like a Muppet. What my boss, what my boss Stuart was designing and, uh, and what uh, I uh, contributed was uh, cutting edge at the time. Um, of course, there wasn't just one Yoda. There were, there were four Yodas um, that we used in different ways for different shots. And, um, but it, it, I, you can't get past the performance that, uh, first of all, uh, Frank Oz led. Frank was Yoda's, um, you know, or rather Frank's right arm was Yoda, basically. Um, and, um, and, and he directed the other puppeteers who got no credit at all for about 25 years. Um, yeah. I, I put up a, a website in the, in the mid nineties, um, when websites were, were kind of new and, um, and, uh, one of the things that I did there was I, I talked about all the other people that were involved in building Yoda and also in operating Yoda because uh, archives are really built around what publicity goes out. And, and Frank was famous and the other puppeteers weren't. So everybody interviewed Frank and, and no one actually asked if there were any other puppeteers, right. even yeah. though it's very clear that if this is Yoda's, um, you know, if this is Frank's right, arm then that's Yoda's neck and that's Yoda's jaw and that's Yoda's lips and this is Yoda's eyebrows but who's operating his eyes and who's operating his eyelids and who's operating his ears and his who's hands. operating his right hand right <clears throat> um, you know it's uh, it that's what it comes down to so um mm -hmm. if it wasn't for the way that they did that that they treated him like a like an acting performance rather than like Miss Piggy. Um, I don't think it would have come off in any way as well as it, as it actually did. And, and a lot of credit to Kirsch for giving um, Frank the time to give that performance. I think one of the things in The Last Jedi was that Yoda was really rushed. I think maybe the, the director was a bit scared of him uh, in that too. And we just kind of, 
jumped in and we got a couple of lines and we jumped out and there was a, a little laugh and then we set fire to the, the you know to the temple and uh, you know would we have loved Yoda the way that we do um, if you hadn't had that time of of spent the time holding on Yoda with him being disappointed with Luke, with him concentrating and lifting the, the, the you know, if you'd spit up the whole thing of lifting the X-Wing out of the, out of the swamp, it would have lost, it would have lost a lot. And so it took courage, I'm sure, for him to hold on that puppet as long as he did. Um, the first day's filming, uh, Frank realized that what he was doing or what they were doing was way too big. And they filmed it again uh, because he recognized that, you know, for this to be a believable movie character, he needed to tone it down and tone mm. it down. I, and the same thing, when I go to conventions with the, with the, um, with the V1 light, a V2 light, which is what I call the puppet I've got now, which is, uh, you know, it takes four puppeteers to operate Yoda. And when I go to a con convention, I can't pick up three people because they all grab that leaf. So I, I have a kind of a light version that, that has a little less movement that can, you know, be operated like a one-man band. Um, right. And mm. so, but um, when I take that, you know, the first few times, I realized, you know, I was going over the top with him too. You know, it's too easy to, to you know, to overdo those movements yeah. and particularly the mouth movements. You know, it, 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 you think you're hardly moving your hand at all, but yeah. it, it, it's much more believable. Right. It becomes uh, more puppet, uh, Muppet, Muppet-esque. Yes. It, yeah. becomes, it becomes Grover. Well, becomes they Grover. were talking about that with the... Dark Crystal that a lot of the traditional puppeteers would take the Gelflings and walk them in and it was too right. much. So they pinned it to their side and walked in normally right. and their normal footsteps translated to... You, you, know. should, you should tell Nick, um, uh, Derek uh, has quite a bit of uh, puppeteering expertise. Uh, well, experience anyway. Uh, I, I would I would say expertise, but you know he would say experience. Um, and we interviewed uh, B.J. Geyer, who is a who's a very prominent puppeteer these days. Puppeteering is a, not he was a easy. Puppeteer too. Yeah. yeah, that's right. He was. Uh, I wanted to uh, clear something up. Uh, a lot of people who don't know anything about empire strikes back uh well i don't know who that would be they're living under a rock but uh you're talking about irvin kirshner the the director and he yes. he passed away in uh 2010 but uh, yeah. you, when you say kirsch that's who you're talking about yeah yeah, yeah that's who i'm talking about yeah yeah i i think i can say unabashedly i feel like he was a driving force behind that being one of the best movies in the entire saga Oh, I think it is the best yeah. in the entire. I, I do too. Yeah, it's I do. yeah, yeah. It because it has its action and it has its excitement, but it has very solid character development and 
and and movement uh, through the stuff. It was a long time before I discovered that he was George Lucas's professor at college. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so uh, you know that that made some sense when uh, when I, I looked at it because he was uh, you know a, he he had a certain old school um style i mean he he wasn't the kind of guy that you would look at and say oh yeah he's gonna make a great science fiction movie i mean right, he, right. He, he just wasn't right um but he, he did a great he, he looked style. he looked like he would have done a great swashbuckler movie he, he's the kind uh, of guy you look at him and he looks like he would be directing earl flynn <laughs> well, you know and I'm, i'll say something controversial because a lot of people going back and forth oh george is a genius and george messed up this I gotta say, that choice of having Irving Kirshner come in to direct that second film after being that first one being such a hit, I know that George put so much of himself into that first one that you know he needed some help. Kudos to him for going and getting that help, because right. yeah, well, uh, there's it, a it's, sorry, it was kind ahead. of it was kind of odd really in a way um i mean i wasn't there when he said it but you know one of the things that surprised me when we got <laughs> on, yes right it surprised me when we got on to um when we got onto the second movie was that george had said to someone that the best thing about the original star wars was that it meant he would never have to direct another movie again um he really struggled with with the whole experience he didn't like i i had one of the people i was interviewing um on our on our, our broadcast that we do every month on um uh starnet events um was uh, the managing director of 20th Century Fox when they made the first movie. And one of the things he said was that, you know, George kept coming to him and saying, but the crew keeps asking me questions. <laughs> right? And he said, well, that's what they do. You know, you, you have to tell them what you want and they will go on and, and get on with it. He was a very incommunicative guy and, and he would have he would have dialogue coaches that were there basically directing the actors. I mean, he would say bigger or smaller. That was about it, really. Um, you know, he was a genius to put together a lot of different things that hadn't, that had been done in different movies, but not all in one movie. Um, he, he was brilliant in to bring all of those things together that, that, that was so, that made a movie that changed the way that movies were made. He was even more brilliant as a business person in terms of, uh, you know, of the way he pushed merchandising afterwards. Oh, uh, yeah, Charles yeah. Lippincott, um, who's just recently died, um, was the guy that was doing uh, those uh, those early merchandising deals and he wasn't happy with Charles because he didn't feel like he was getting you know enough out of the uh, toy companies and and out of Marvel you know but mm. it was a completely unknown movie you can't say right. to Marvel I <clears throat> want X amount of dollars from your comics when they've got all the production costs of the comics and maybe the movie flops so <laughs> right. you know 
So the toy manufacturers were saying, well, we have to sell this number of items before we give you anything, which did, which did you ever see? He sure made up for it on the second and the third movies. They sure did. Did you ever see, there's a, a show on Netflix called The Toys That Made Us. Yeah. And they and cover, they talk, they talk about this, this saga. This is, that, a, this is a BBC. Is it a uh, BBC? It's, uh, it's on Netflix. It's on Netflix. Yeah, I know it's on Netflix, but is it? Oh, it may, it may be. Yeah, it may be a BBC. I don't know because my my uh, I have a co-host on um, Starnet Events who made um, the Galaxy that Britain built, and also a a documentary about the making of the first Star Wars toys. Uh, but I think oh, okay. that so maybe that's it. Yeah. So I was wondering if it was the same documentary. Uh, well, this is a uh, this documentary is it actually covers several uh, several toys. So each episode, I think there are four or five episodes a year. Okay. But uh, it covers. I think the first one was Star Wars, and then it, it goes through GI Joe and Barbie. Oh, and, and, it's, and it's something else. It's yeah, something. it's toys from the 1970s and 80s, and it talks okay. very much about why. Uh, Star Wars characters are this big. The guy from Kenner, you know, he had massive meaty hands and he just went, ah, make them this big. And he just like stuck uh -huh. his hand on the table and there it was. And because you had these big G.I. Joe dolls. They were like figures 12. That were like 12, 12 inches. inches. And, Six, I, oh, yeah. and I had like all of those versions of the Star Wars characters for a long time. I think my brother sold them on eBay like probably probably three years before the next, you know, series came out and he could have, you know, and he's like, I got like a 50 bucks I can send you. And I was like, I was so mad. I mean, he had IG-88, you know, anyway. Oh, uh, yeah, awesome. those, yeah, yeah, those toys were, were I think probably uh, one of the most important money makers financially for the whole, whole series. Oh yeah. But when, well, I, but I, as I, soon I, as Yoda hit the screen, man, that blew everything I, I out of the water. Up, I was looking up the, you know, the merchandising numbers uh, um, uh, a couple of years ago, and it was, it was talking about how much money the merchandising had turned over in the first two years of Disney, and, you know, Disney doesn't get all of that money because, you know, they they get they license. The making of shirts to this guy and the making of arts to that guy and the making of something else to someone else and um uh, but you know when you talk about when you look at it the first the first couple of um disney movies you know turned over a couple of billion dollars and you say wow it was a couple of billion dollars that was amazing but in the same period of time the toys and the shirts and 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 the sheets and whatever else turned over five hundred billion dollars. Wow! That that is effectively something in the region of fifty thousand dollars a second. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it still continues to. And it goes on and on. That's why I really believe that is why every time you have a new movie, you have a whole bunch of new characters. It's because they want to sell. You know, they think, well, we've already sold R2D2 to that 
guy down the street. Now we've got to sell him all these new characters, yep. right? Yep. So we've got to have a new robot, and we've got to have a new heroine, and we've got to have a new whatever. So there's, I mean, Derek was saying, I'm going to say something controversial earlier. I'm going to say something now. I'll be honest, as much as there is great genius behind the the franchise as a franchise like monetarily speaking i do really wish they could kind of stick to um a certain number of characters and just let those characters develop themselves and play out but then and, and yeah and then they say okay well in the prequels let's show how c3po was actually made by anakin and i'm like come on i mean as much as i love c3po and he's like thank the maker oh well that turns out it's anakin so lucky you what come on it's it's just too much and i i get why they did it but and everybody's gonna hate me for this so all our listeners come at me but uh there it is you got a visitor ah it came back <laughs> I, I wish they really had kind of stuck with, um, you know, seeing everybody's character arc flow. Uh, and they did a lot, but then they keep adding in, you know, now you got Baba Frick and Baby Yoda. I really don't want to be uh, um, critical. I think that there are those people who were, uh, you know, deeply disappointed with the new movies. Um, those same people are, are largely very happy with the Mandalorian. And so as long as there is something for them, maybe our younger people um, who think of those old characters as old characters, they, they may have been introduced just at the back end of, of that. And right. I'm sure that Disney are really um, focusing on gaining those new fans who are going to keep them in uh in in lemonade for the next uh 50 years yeah my daughter's old fans that are all gonna you know die off in the next 20 years so yeah my daughters <laughs> love bba they just love bba more than anybody else so i understand I where that's at but i do think for me i don't understand how you could describe um, the last three movies as being part of a Skywalker saga since they were about two other people. It was the handing off. I think they were trying to say, okay, we're somehow connected to the old, but forget about them. And here we go with this new group. Yeah, that's exactly what they were doing. But yeah. how do you say this is the end of the Skywalker saga when it's really, uh, uh, you know, about two other people? Um, you know, just because it's like me saying, oh, well, I'm, I'm really Nick Trump. That doesn't make me Nick Trump, right? <laughs> so, so, but, you know, I, I was not thrilled um, I was not thrilled with the with the latest movies. Yeah. I thought oh. they started promisingly, um, but I I felt once again I would have liked to have seen a rounding off of that original story, and then they can go off with their a Star Wars story in whatever tangents they want to go. Sure, right. And I think a lot of old fans feel that way. 
I think a lot of old fans were disappointed with what they did with Luke and what they did with. with well, when uh, you find out that uh, Mark Hamill was disappointed with what they did with Luke. <laughs> yeah, so. well, you know, it's funny because I started thinking most of my complaints, like if I have complaints, they're just grumpy old men complaints. And because my kids absolutely love BB-8. They love Baba Frick. They love Baby Yoda. And they, they love Yoda. I mean, I yeah. get Master Yoga. Yeah. Uh, well, I, tell you, I like I like Baby Yoda too. I I think he's I, I really like him. I'll send um, you one. I would like that. He doesn't. Um, he his head shape, his skull seems to be the wrong shape for him to be actually it's the same species. And it's his eyes, his eyes are so different. That being blacked out, right? Well, being. It's not that they're blacked out. They look like they're blacked out, but there's a there is an iris and a pupil there, like a you know, like a dog's eye. Um, right. But I think he's a subspecies. I think he's a cross between Yoda and uh, someone from Area Fifty Two. Well, you know, Disney has in the last several years gone the route of, and if you so if you walk into the Disney store, uh, they sell the Animator Collection. And the animator collection is uh, all the Disney princesses in a baby version. Now, what they've done is since nah, 2000 and maybe five or so, they've switched from uh, promoting movies to promoting the characters. That way, whatever movie they're in, you'll go watch it because you like the characters, which right. I think is, is brilliant, absolutely brilliant. But they'll also, in every movie since then, they have a scene where the main character is a child, whether it's Merida um, or uh, Moana. Yeah, Moana is yeah. like that. They all have just at least one scene where the character is a child. And so you kind of go, I want that doll too. And this is kind of what they've done. They've taken Yoda and said, I want to baby fire him. And they did a animator's... Uh, an animator special, an animator's version of Yoda. And they just took his eyes and just made him, they, they Pikachu'd him. I don't know if yeah, you know who did, Pikachu but they is. They did build him, he is a puppet. Yes, yeah, he's a yeah, puppet. yeah, 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 yeah. We, yeah. Uh, uh, we know some of the folks who- Well, uh, Dave Filoni is an old friend of ours and uh, he's, he's a, a fan's fan. You know, he, he started off, uh, matter of fact, he and my wife and I went to um, opening night of the last no wait revenge of the jedi or revenge of the sith revenge of the didn't sith. your wife make his robe <laughs> yeah she made his robes which she was mortified because she made him robes then he she went and directed at lucas and while he was directing at lucas he had put the robes my wife made on a on a mannequin outside his office so then he called us and said hey george was looking at your robes crystal and uh she was she was mortified she's like i would have done a better job if i thought george was actually going to be you uh -huh. know looking at my work that's but uh yeah he's a fan so you know he he wanted the real puppet he wanted a an actual thing for the cast to interact with right. so i think uh you know and coming coming back to that um i think it's important for our viewers and listeners uh to sort of know your background uh, i mean we jumped right into it because we know you we know your work we love your work sure. um but should we rewind a little and where did it, where did you start 
sure. working up to uh, yeah. I, I, Well, first of all, you know, my name's Nick Maley. People call me that Yoda guy because I've been uh, involved in um, building Yoda. I didn't design Yoda. At my, I worked with Stuart Freeborn, who was uh, my mentor for about seven years. Um, I started making movies in 1969, which is scary when you realize that's 51 years ago. Uh, but um, did a movie with Charlton Heston as Julius, as, as, as Mark Anthony in, in Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, if you can imagine that. Um, and, um, and so uh, I, I, I made different um, basic, I was a makeup artist, so, uh, but I, I'm bored easily. I don't. Uh, I don't get off on making pretty people prettier. Um, I, I can do it for a little while. But I. I was. I was really a character makeup artist originally from theatre. So I wanted to look at character and the development of character. Being able to take your face and bring out the 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 elements in your face that make you look evil and you add your performance to that yes exactly um and and similarly to um to to be able to bring out uh, elements in your face that people would automatically say oh he's a nice guy um based on on basic physiognomy which is what cartoons are based on etc so um so basically i started to play around uh, with that i i wanted to get into creature effects everybody said to me well at, at that time actually there weren't it wasn't really creature effects it was prosthetic effects old age makeups and people with scars and various uh, uh, other things i mean you had the um the characters from the Black Lagoon that were before my time, but that was about the standard of what people did for creatures, and it was really more of a costume and a pullover mask than than. I think, I think for me as a child, it was the little big man makeup that sort yeah, of. Yeah, that was brilliant. Really, yeah, and yeah. I became I became very good friends with Dick Smith um, over the years, basically because of that job um, that he did, and and so. Um, I started to target the guys who uh, who were doing that. People said, oh, you'll never catch up with them. They've been doing it for 30 years. You shouldn't <laughs> bother, right? Well, you, you know, as I say in my book, you know, you, you can't... Uh, you, you can't live an, an extraordinary life without making an extraordinary effort. And so, um, you know, I, I pursued, yeah. basically stalked Stu for a while and um, and eventually, I worked with him on uh, in 1971 in a yeah. on a movie about Winston Churchill, where we were doing beard work and and other stuff. And it was another uh, few years before his son, who I had befriended, um, encouraged him to include me in the Moss Eisley for the the team for the Moss Eisley Cantina. I had worked with his son on uh, a horror film and on. Um, some Pills Lager ads where we had a, a bar, a, 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 we had Donald Pleasance in a bar drinking lager with the mummy and with Frankenstein oh, and cool. uh, you know it was just fun and so having done that um, I, I basically joined the team as the junior on the first Star Wars movie. We built the creatures for Mus Eisley and I can't 
claim much of that as being entirely mine because I was a new kid on the block and they didn't trust me to do too much. So I, I contributed to almost everything that was in uh, the, the principal photography shoot and made all the prosthetics uh, for the uglies and, and the smoker at the end of the bar was my first on-screen um, uh, prosthetics. Oh, and and, um, and so uh, then we went, we left that, we went and did uh, a, a job for Gene Roddenberry. So I guess we would be considered traitorous now, but um, <laughs> we did a job for Gene Roddenberry and then uh, we went on to Superman 1 and 2. And so by the time we came back to Empire Strikes Back, um, I was a senior member of the team and Stu liked to keep his teams, his, his crew small. Um, and so that basically meant that while he was working on devising what Yoda was going to be, I was the guy left in supervising the workshop. And so I made a lot of movies over the years. I, I was the only person who worked on all four versions of Yoda. Um, and I devised the, the, the final puppet, uh, which you see in 80% of the, of the movie. I wanted um, to ask you something about that puppet mechanics when you uh I, just, I don't know if it's a tangent now or not but as you were working on the inside of that puppet what was it that inspired the how you how you create or how you uh set up the mechanics of that because for instance the wrinkles around his eyes i heard you know this inspired by einstein i, I heard all yeah, these different were. things um but the actual uh, structure of his face, it allows yeah. for certain movements because you know, I mean, how he scrunches his face up and he's like, you know, he gets real disappointed yes. and stuff. And Frank does a great job of that, but that wouldn't have been possible without your, without your well, work actually, in there. Let me straighten that out. Um, there were certain elements that Frank wanted within the puppet that were in the prototype which Stu built and which I automatically included in the backup Yoda, which I built. Um, Stu did a brilliant job of sculpting Yoda. It took him forever, but um, it was, I mean, he did a, a really great job. Uh, I think Yoda, as a, as a character guy, you know, Yoda's physiognomy has everything already in it. He, you know, he has smiling eyes, but he has sallow cheeks. He isn't no. a round, cuddly, funny, laughy character until you make him do that. Um, you know, he, he has frown lines, but he, which, which are opposed to his smile lines. You know, when you, when you look at grandma, you can see all kinds of elements in grandma's face that, uh, that, that actually tell you about how she lived her life. And, and the different experiences she had and the elements that Stu sculpted into Yoda's face um, really make you believe that he has seen a lot in his time. And, you can, and he, he doesn't need to be re-sculpted to be angry. You just have to activate those, that part of his face. So getting back to your question, uh, Frank, wanted to be able to physically operate the eyebrows. He had it, I believe, in his mind to be able to do that, that, that scrunchy look. 
uh, when we were building him, um, Stu uh, had imagined, you know, putting a jawbone on because if you think of Chewbacca, Chewbacca has a full skull underneath, and and Peter's uh, jaw would operate Chewbacca's jaw, right. uh, but it was really a transference of those movements. Uh, Frank said, no, he didn't want a jawbone. That's why I think Yoda's face looked different in. Um, in the last Jedi, because if you don't position the hand in exactly the same position that it's in in the first puppet, then it either pushes the jaw, the, the mouth forward, or pulls it backwards. And and so it's really critical. What's on the inside is as critical as what's on the outside. So he he had a system that they used. Um, with the Muppets and so we took elements from what they were doing with the Muppets and incorporated them in and what Stu was trying to do was build a really heavily a, a very I, I use the word heavily and that gives the wrong impression a super lightweight um, very engineered mechanism that would allow Frank's hand to pass through the middle of it to get to the eyebrows. Hmm. That was the big hold up thing. And Stu also wanted, you never saw it in the movie, but he wanted Yoda to be able to change focus. So oh, he had a mechanism inside that allowed the pupils to go oh. in to look closer and to look further away. But Frank uh, never operated that. And I think, I think occasionally he accidentally hit that because there are times in Yoda's hut where he looks a bit cross-eyed. Mm -hmm. And that was, that's basically because that adjustment has, has been made accidentally. Um, so uh, yeah, when you're talking to me about how did I think about it, the, the Yoda that I built, which was a backup, was built in a real hurry. And so for me, I had seen um, what Stu was building. I had seen what he was doing and I had seen how he was laboring over it. And I knew that I didn't have the time for a backup to do any of the things that he was doing. And so for me, all I was thinking about was how am I going to build this in three days? And so... <laughs> Three days. Uh, three days. Well, three thank days, you for your yeah. honesty, sir. <laughs> so so um, what I did was I did the opposite to what Stu was doing. He was building a fine mechanism that could be taken out and put in. Um, I built something straight into the skull that was a fixed item that, you know, literally, rather than saying, I'm going to get a bracket here and I'm going to fix two screws there and I need to make a fitting to get this fitting over there, I just took a bunch of acrylic and acrylic the tube straight into the inside of the skull oh, and wow. bent the end round and said, okay, that's going to that's gonna pull from there and that'll do that. You know, I, I, what I wanted was just something that was going to work uh, because... Um, Stu had spent so long with, oh, not just, it sounds like I'm, I'm blaming Stu for that. I, I'm not. They, <laughs> they could not make up their mind what Yoda was going to look like. And so of the, we had 10 months to build Yoda and film him. So we had basically like eight months to build him. And they spent five months deciding what he was going to look like. 
it take it you know it took at least three weeks for us to make the molds and produce the uh, the component parts to start to put something together so you know that really left him with a very small amount of time to figure out how to do this heavily engineered um, piece that he was doing um, for the and you did yours in three days oh, and you and did so, yours in three days <laughs> yeah but my mine wasn't as mine wasn't as beautifully engineered as his was the only difference was mine worked no. <laughs> Sometimes the simple answer is the better. Simple, one. simple is best. Well, simple is always I best. I have to say, one <clears> of the <throat> one of the chapters in my book is, and I I wrote this book to try and inspire other people to follow their dreams to be all they could be, uh, but I make sure that there isn't any chapter that's longer than three paragraphs because I don't want to bore anybody, right? And so, uh, <laughs> but one of them says, um, you know, let simplicity be the essence of your genius. Right? Oh, absolutely. What you need to do is look at something and then whittle it down and whittle it down and bring it down to the simplest level, especially when you're making movies. Because when something breaks, they haven't got the time to wait for you to figure out what component it is that doesn't work and how long it's going to take for you to fix it and whether you've got to strip it all down again. You don't want something as complicated as a BMW. You want something as simple as will do the job, as unlikely Kiss. to break down as possible. Kiss. Keep it simple, stupid. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, to be honest, it's amazing that they got by with only four because yeah. uh, we were talking to, Ted, our first interview was with Ted Haynes, who is a fabricator and he makes uh, costumes and lots of different things. And uh, he had done the Tick costume for the Tick TV show. And they had like a dozen of those, just the costume. And I was like, you know, it's not easy to make so many of those things. But, you know, you have to have an extra one on scene in case something breaks. And then you yeah. have to be there to watch over it yeah. in case it needs fixing. Right. It's a hands-on hey, job. I think now, though, I, I've interviewed quite a lot of people recently um, making The Mandalorian, making, um, you know, other uh, uh, Marvel movies, etc. They really do break it down to uh, elements that are that are much smaller. You know, someone says, oh, you made that costume. Say, well, actually, I made eight pairs of pants. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Right? You are the pan maker, right? And someone yeah. else is making the armor and someone else is making something else. They break it down into lots of small pieces now. Uh, whereas, you know, in, in the day when we were doing it, you conceived it up here, you built it with these, you, you did the phone work, you did the stuff, you assembled it. You uh, painted it. In, in movies like Life Force, I filmed it as well, right? So. Wow. Um, it was uh, it was it was a different way of doing stuff, and I think much more satisfying than to mm. be able to say I'm the guy who made um, Kylo Ren's pants. Well, no, right. I mean that's why we wanted you on the show, of yeah. course, is because you are that Renaissance man. You are you're thinking as a fabricator, as a as a tailor, as as an actor. Uh, uh, you know, as a all the as a makeup thing. artist, yeah, yeah, as a makeup, and, that, and that's and that's what we focus on here. And as a matter of fact, we wanted to uh, ask you, um, 
specifically, what are some of the things that you're working on right now to, I mean, you have your uh, Starnet, right? Uh, yeah. You also have your museum there in St. Martin's. Uh, yeah. And you have a lot of stuff. And you, like you said, you interviewed a lot of guys. I know you know Tom. Tom Spainer, uh, or, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, you talk to a lot of folks, but you bring together this community and you want to continue to do that. And we want to introduce people to that community so that they can come in and, and listen to those interviews and, and well, uh, if they get the chance to go down to the Caribbean. Well, you know, I, 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 um, I, we, I wasn't doing uh, Starnet events until COVID shut everything down. Basically, uh, I have a museum in the Caribbean um, where people come and see me and talk about movies. It's the only place in the world where someone can access a, a Star Wars personality without paying to get into a convention. And so, you know, people will come into the museum and it's like 12 bucks to go through the museum and we've got all kinds of stuff from Men in Black and, and, and Harry and the Hendersons and of course Star Wars and Highlander and Life Force and other movies that I worked on. Yeah. Um, and, um, and at the end, you know, I'm sitting there working at my computer and I talk to everybody and I, I you know, I'm the host and, uh, and that was, that's been hugely popular. We, we're recommended on every major cruise line um, as a place that they should go to. And TripAdvisor has put it in their hall of fame and just gave us a, a, a what was the word? Um, um, Traveler's Choice Award Best of the Best 2020, which is a kind of weird thing to give us when there's no tourists here. But anyway, that's that's beside the point. Um, Take it. So it's good. That has been keeping me. That has been keeping me pretty busy. Well, suddenly, you know, here we are in a small Caribbean island, which has probably no more than 70,000 people. So it's smaller than a small town. Um, it doesn't have enough local business to keep anything going. And so the main shopping drag is all about buying stuff duty-free because there's no duty in St. Martin, no import duty at all. Um, and so it's built itself around duty-free shopping and whatever. So, you know, the, the main drag is 300 shops of which 200 are, are jewelry stores and one is um, the Yoda Guy movie exhibit. Um, but suddenly when the ship stopped coming one day on the 12th of March, the economy just stops dead. That's it. Yeah. I think we've taken, we've taken $400 since March the 12th. Um, and, um, you know, paying the rent and doing those other things is, um, it's just a formula for going broke. Right now, I believe about 110 of the 300 businesses in Front Street have gone belly up. Um, and we don't know when the ships are going to come back. So there might be, there might, there might be nobody left here by the time the ships do, um, do come back in. And, and I'm concerned too about whether or not the ships will let their passengers roam freely around a location and then get back on the ship to infect 
infect other people. I know that MSC in Europe um, only let their people go on organized tours. And when a couple wandered off, they wouldn't let them get back on the ship. So if they do that, then none of these stores are going to get any business at all, even when the ships come back. So it's a, it's a scary time. Um, I wrote, I got a lot of followers on, on YouTube and also on uh, Facebook. Um, I've got multiple pages on Facebook. So if you put them all together, there's probably, uh, I don't know, 15,000 there. Um, even though I don't think any groups got more than 3,000, but, uh, but YouTube, I've got 16,000 people there. And so, you know, I, I put out the fact that we were going to fold up if we couldn't figure out some way of doing it. And I had a bunch of people who joined me on Patreon. Um, we have a, 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 a patreon.com slash FYSF, which is the Foliest Star Foundation, which is my foundation. Um, we'll put links to that in the, in the people description. People subscribed to that yeah. and then started, you know, giving us a, a couple of thousand dollars a month, which has helped us get through. And then right. I, I started to do sales of some of our relic items online to make up the difference to pay the bills. And we cut all our overheads down, but we managed to get through the first five months of it. And we're hoping that we'll get through the next five months of it. Um, but Starnet events was something that I started to thank those people who were supporting us to say, well, you know what? I'm gonna reach out to my friends and to my colleagues and, and give you uh, four hours of entertainment of people that you would never normally be able to get access to. I think uh, James and I were part of those first couple. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and they were brilliant. They were really great, so. Yeah, uh, I, you know. I really recommend to folks, uh, if, you, uh, if you get the chance, um, check out we're going to put links to all this yeah, in the sure. description. And then uh, if everybody who's listening wants to go and you want to join this, go on the Facebook page. It has links to it. And it also has, you know, scheduling and updates and everything. Uh, I know t uh, Tom and a bunch of other uh, guys guest on there and they, they talk and it's really, really educational. I mean, if you well, don't yeah, know yeah. anything about it or if you want to know something about it, man, that's the place to go. Well, it's a great combination. Go ahead. I was going to say the Folio Star Foundation is all about encouraging people to follow their dreams and be creative rather than sitting around playing games all the time. I'm sorry, guys, for playing games, but that's how I feel about it. And so I try to encourage people to believe. Let's let's explain to them a little something about how something was made so they can experiment with it and they can develop it and they can, uh, you know, get into it. So I, I, I also embrace the cosplay community because yeah. a lot of of those people are the next generation of creative people and a number of the people who are mainstays for uh, Starnet events are people who started out in cosplay and now work for Disney or you know whoever else who've made that that evolution. And I was getting ready to say you're, you're talking to some you're talking to two of them yeah <laughs> yeah right. I, no, but Nick, I really appreciated that you have you know, veterans from yourself yeah. included, but you have veterans, but then you have the cosplay community who are so passionate about building and learning other skills. And I mean, that's our podcast in a nutshell is we want to talk to the people who are searching for that 
next skill so that they can combine them. You know, you've got these cosplayers who are doing foam work, leather, uh, electronics, uh, uh, mechanisms. Yes. Just so that they can get that almost impossible experience, you know? So that's really cool. It's, so yeah, I can't recommend it enough. It was really great. But there's also a lot of new techniques there. So every now and then I'm learning something too. One, oh, of, yeah. one, of, the girls, one of the girls that uh, that's a, a mainstay um, uh, with me, Cynthia uh, Kirkland, who uh, is a costumer for Disneyland mm -hmm. and for Disney Cruise Lines, making the the costumes for you know for the stormtroopers to go take over the ship or whatever else. And um, and so you know, I'm seeing how she's using 3D printing and various other things to get around certain elements. Um, and I was talking to someone else too about about um, you know being even possibly um, producing 3D printed molds to make physical non non 3D um, items. So you know, there's a, there's a lot of of new ideas that can float around. I, I, another thing in my book, you know, I, I say you know you should never stop learning because uh, you may think you're a master of your craft, but you 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 can't stay ahead of the crowd if you don't keep moving forward. Right. Right. Agreed. A hundred percent. Yeah. That's very true. Do you have a copy of your book around? If you want to hold one up uh to show uh, on the camera or yeah or we can you know always i like that chair i'm you, back all right okay are you do you sell that yeah. on amazon or anything it's yeah. on amazon it's in barnes and noble yeah. um you know i think if you go to barnes and noble store they may have to order it for you because i i don't think they got it in every barnes and noble uh bookshop um right. but uh you can get it from online just by ordering it through amazon or barnes and noble uh and or direct. Um, there is no crime yeah exactly you know it's the do do or do not outlook i couldn't resist you know uh, borrowing that um and um, you know, as I say on the back, um, it's a it's a Jedi's uh, guide to self empowerment. <laughs> yeah, for everybody who's uh, Derek, you were going to say for everybody who's listening, uh, the book's called "The Do or Do Not Outlook." It's yeah. fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's worth it's worth because it's your insights too. You know, and I, I think that's. That's the fun of it. It's really just about a particular attitude. It's a state of mind, right? Yep. We are uh, the first. The first thing in the book, the first paragraph says. I don't um, believe it. Back before you fail. No, it points out the fact. I'm just trying to find page number one. You know, it's there, right? And it says, you know, you you. You can't live an exceptional life by being normal. Let's get used to that. First of all, people just don't get that. They we live in a world where everybody thinks that if a million people think it's good, then that's the standard that it needs to be. You have to understand Einstein. There weren't a million people that were going to agree with Einstein about the, the principles of relativity. You know, there. there 
encyclopedias are not written by normal people, by average people. They're written by experts. The, the strange guy sitting in the corner, the weird one that nobody likes, he's the one that's going to change the world, not the, not, the, not the leader of the football team. I'm going to go back and tell everybody I went to high school with that because they were all always making fun of me. Yeah, well, that's it. <laughs> really, that is it. And so... Um, and so, and I found, I was, I was invited to go talk at um, autism conventions because of the book, because a lot of the things that I talk about there are about, uh, about self-value and about mm -hmm. believing in yourself and believing you can achieve something. Some at conventions, when I'm doing uh, talks about uh, um, making the creatures for Moss Eisley and how Yoda was built, I also do one about uh, believing in yourself and, and following your dreams. And, um, and you can see those people, they are there, but they have been bamboozled at school and they've been bamboozled by their families to believe, but you'll never make any money at that. Don't take a risk, right? It's a risk not to be normal. Yes. Well, if you don't take the risk, you're never going to be on a show like this because you stuck your neck out and, and built a backup Yoda in three days. I could have said, oh, no, I couldn't possibly build that and not stuck my neck out. If I hadn't, and if, when I went for it, I didn't know how I was going to build it. I just knew I had to do it in the time. Yeah, uh, and there's it, nothing wrong with failing in that either, because that's a good way to No, learn. and that's another chapter in the book. It says yeah. setbacks are okay, because yeah. you haven't failed until you've given up. Well, that's and right. I think that idea that, you know, you don't say no. I, I, I built my career on people will say, well, you're going to write this episode. And I say, okay. Then I come home and I, you know, go to my wife and say, ah, how am I going to do that? I don't know, you know. And she writes it and yes of course i mean you know, she's the brilliant but one that's, but that's okay um and and that's the bottom line if you don't grasp the opportunity you don't know where your life would have led you right right yeah i mean i mean for 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 all three of us i know that that's been sort of the launching point is we went where it was scary yep to go yeah. where to go boldly where no man has gone before. My dad. Oh, am, I, am I quoting the wrong series? Yeah, well, yeah, uh, the other. Okay, I'll forgive you. Yeah, my, my dad sat me down, you know, in a caring way and says, what are you doing? You're going to California to be what, an actor, an artist? And I said, well, dad, it's kind of both. He goes, like, that's better. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, but then when I came out with the first, my first movie, he said, I went to the theater by myself and I'm sitting there with a bunch of kids and but I watched your movie, you know, and it, it was sort of a, a vote of confidence. You know? yeah, yeah. Ted said, um, he said his dad was like, I don't understand what's going on. And then he came out and he visited him on set and he's like, Arnold Schwarzenegger knows your name. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. At some point you just, the thing is, is we often look for recognition from those that we consider important, whether that's in our parents or whoever. And right to seek the recognition of somebody else, I think is sometimes a mistake, not necessarily so, but you have to work towards a goal. And if you are happy with your work, um, then push yourself on and forward and, and do something new and do something more. But that whole attitude of thinking that you're gonna fail, or I mean, like they said in Star Wars, when Luke says, 
you know, I don't believe it. And then Yoda's like, that's why you failed. That's why you failed. It exactly. Really is. That's why you failed, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that is. And, and actually, I know I'm harping back on, on something we talked about earlier, but I believe that that is why those quotes and those scenes are why uh, Empire Strikes Back is the best of all those movies. Oh, it gets into yeah. philosophy and it gets into the driving force. They wanted to discover what is this force that everyone's talking about. And, and, and I think that uh, without getting much credit for it, I think Gary Kurtz was probably partly involved in that since he was the spiritual one of that team. Mm. Um, but uh, Lawrence Kasdan uh, you know, wrote a brilliant script and, and it had so many elements uh, within it, other than people running around shooting each other with, uh, with you know, with laser guns, it. Um, we've seen so many movies since that are one action sequence after another. Does that really make a movie that we all remember for for forty years? You know, Casablanca, people still talk about it, and the airplane didn't even take off. Right, never. Nope. It was a cardboard cutout. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, coming back, Nick, to what you said, the bravery, I think, uh, even Irving Kershaw, the whole team, think about that one scene where Yoda describes the Force to Luke. It's one shot. And the yeah. subtlety of the acting, he carries it. He just eats up the yeah. scenery. You, you don't question it. You're just completely vested uh, because of culmination. Such a beautiful. I, I was watching it recently with the kids, and yeah, it's still yeah. chill worthy. It, it, yeah, it's, uh, it really is. I mean, he reaches over and pinches him. You know, he's like yeah. it surrounds us, it binds us. And the thing is, is you know, you look at at the the philosophy of it, and, that, and that's one thing. But man, does that really push forward the character development? And like Derek was saying, that acting it really makes it real. And suddenly, not only do you have this story. You know, Kazdan's story is is really good, but he brings the 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 fact that it's a puppet brings forth this tangibility and this realism to what he's saying. And like, I love that little pinch, and you can and you see Luke's arm get pinched. And I mean, that's hard to do in CG. You can do it, obviously, but it's hard to make it real like that. And I remember seeing that I was. How, how old were we when, when Empire came out? It was, Star Wars was my first movie. 79, um, was it 79? Empire, no, um, the first movie came- it 77. Uh, 77. It was 80, it was 1980. Yeah, 80 was Empire Strikes Back. And I remember right. seeing that thinking, that's not Kermit the Frog. That's not a Muppet, you know? Is that real? Is he a living thing? You know, my mom was just like, no. <laughs> I, you couldn't couldn't get well, it out of you, my head you say that i have these people even today that come into the museum and think that yoda was a little guy in a in a in a prosthetic makeup right yeah right. yeah yeah that you've you've done a fantastic you've done a fantastic job not just of your, your original work, but also keeping it alive and introducing people to the world. And we can see your uh, your museum behind you here if people are watching sure. on YouTube. Yes, there's a little uh, bit of it. Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. Got, and we uh, want to show... We got aliens over in the corner I, there. 
Nice. <laughs> oh my goodness yeah. gracious. That's fantastic. You're going to scare, scare the pants off the little kids there. <laughs> well, actually, I built that one out of silicon because I wanted it to be the last thing that people saw. And I wanted that when they got within three feet of it, it just eased forward and, and breezed on them a bit. <laughs> nice. Nothing That's... too grand. Just, right. just a little... That sounds That's mean. <laughs> I never got to finish it. But I'll get to it sometime in the next 20, 30 years. Whose face cast is that behind you? Uh, let me see. I see, I see the Maltese Falcon. That is uh, Bogey. Oh, that's great. Oh, wow. Yeah. We have, we have uh, about six decades of life cast. In fact, we even have the life cast of Abraham Lincoln from three months before he was assassinated. Wow. wow. I that's would love to get my hands on that. Yeah. Have you, have it, you seen, it, it, do, you know, do you know who the, the most advanced uh, animatronic is right now? Like the most the most advanced animatronic on, I think, in the world right now is a is a animatronic of Abe Lincoln. I've seen that. That guy yeah. is amazing. It, it's nuts. big though. It's it's, it's oversized. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's really big. Yeah, it's is this insane. a Disney? It's yeah. not. It's not. Yeah. But he, this guy works for all the different companies. Uh, we could probably send you the link. Uh, it's really uh, yeah. I it's mean, really most amazing. of those things that Disney do, they you're, what you're seeing is the tip of the iceberg because it's all, all uh, everything is under the floor rather than freestanding. Right. Well, he right. does a lot of stuff yeah. for the parks, I think. Yeah, yeah. One yeah. of the one of the thing. There's a big difference between movie animatronics and and uh, theme park animatronics because the theme park animatronics got to run and run and run and run and run and run and run every day and the limitations that you have to put in to make that happen uh, very often minimize the the nicety of some of those movements i wanted to ask something um i want i want, I want your opinion on this there are some people now who are looking at making um robots and animatronics using um and some prosthetics and things like that uh using bladders and things that actually they're not mechanical uh in the machine sense it's more of an organic movement and it of course uh, translates a lot smoother but it's yeah, also fewer to, things to break. Bladders. i used a well, lot of bladders in different movies they're trying to make it like um like the instead of a instead of a gear moving and turning something, they want to make uh, things that uh, like spring coil connections. It's almost pneumatic. Yeah, it's a, well, yeah, it's sort of, yeah, uh, yeah. Here's the here's the one of the issues. Um, animatronics, as a name, came about applied to movies because of union disagreements that were taking place on Empire Strikes Back. Um, we were makeup artists. We were upsetting the sculptors because we were sculpting characters. And we were upsetting the plasterers because we were making molds for foam latex. And we were upsetting the we were upsetting the props department because we were making puppets and we were upsetting the special effects department because we were building mechanisms. And they said, because the, the line producer 
already had a deal to go on to Dark Crystal and wanted to bring a lot of the puppeteers in, the, the makers from who were non-union entirely, said, let's have a new branch and call it animatronics. Hmm. And animatronics does all of this stuff. So animatronics was taken from audio animatronics as a word uh, from Disney. But really what we were building would have been much better described as soft mechanics. Hmm. And the sense of, of biological movements People have gotten so carried away now. Someone says, I'm an animatronic engineer and everything they build is, is working off of servos and push rods and various mechanical principles that have absolutely nothing to do with anything that's biological. And so it, uh, you know, what we were building was largely um, stuff that was quite different even now. I build, um, I build, uh, give, I'm gonna use the word give, into my mechanisms, which an engineer is never, ever, ever going to do. An engineer takes out all the give so that when he presses something, it's direct and it moves. I put flex into that, which is what they're doing by putting in bladders or spring uh, springs into the mechanism is deliberately to give it the sort of soft flexibility that a muscle has. A muscle accelerates to maximum speed and slows down. It doesn't move like a servo that goes at the same speed from one end to the other end. Right. It doesn't have a rigid thing that moves a. I see animatronics now that people put on on uh, YouTube and look, isn't this great? I made this and it's got eyes that go click, 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 click. Yeah. Right? That, that's because, oh, it's easier to, get, to flip the button on the top of the um, radio control unit that just jumps from A to Z instead of going through it in a, in a different way. And I really think that it, you know, people are focusing on the tronics instead of on the anima. anima. And mm -hmm. yeah, we exactly. honestly need to uh, to think more uh, about the biology of a movement. I mean, right. I think that brings to mind um, uh, R2D2. A lot of people don't realize. I think they do now. But Kenny Baker was in that thing and mm. giving it that human quality you know the way yeah. he made it rock the way he he was turning the dome a lot of times by hand yeah and yeah. also things like you've got to plug into something getting a radio controlled thing to line up and plug in even just to get a radio controlled one to walk down a you're in the desert right yeah you are you're in the desert you're going to get a robot to run around on sand oh no that's not quite going to work is it well i tell you what let's get some eight by fours and we'll put them on the ground and we'll just bring the camera up a bit so you can't see his feet and and we'll get the robot to run down you ever tried to get a radio controlled item that it to run evenly in the middle of you know a four foot uh, channel back in they ended up having another version which was just a hollow shell that they pulled on nylon wires right because right. they could pull it in a straight line down the uh, that there are different different things that you need 
to do different shots. And sometimes if it's simple and it works and it gets the shot quicker, why make it more complicated? There's a, there's a trend here in Japan uh, for several commercials that I worked on uh, not too long ago. They use hydraulic mechanisms to do the movements of things. Now, there are some animals that do that. Like if you're going to be doing a bird beak, that actually works rather like that. And a bird's head when it goes back and forth. Yeah, I can see that. But you, we had to, I mean, I know there's always your after recording, uh, your ADR, but we had to do everything, everything again, because of the hydraulic sounds that would go on while you're, record, while you're filming. It was just like, and I'm blowing out the microphone as I do that. I'll have to right, yeah. edit that out later. But I mean, that was so loud that we had to wear like headphones if you're like ear ear protection if you're standing next to the machine because it would pop 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 and it would just fire off and it looked so unnatural and I was so angry and you know yeah of course everything's part of yeah it, that, you know, everybody's that's got contracts you know and, that's why I often say you know get any way you can put a puppeteer in instead of a mechanism put the damn puppeteer in you yes. get so much more uh, movement and believability out of lips that just do that yep. than you yeah. ever get out of cables and wires and servos, right? You yeah. get just that little change of expression, that little subtle movement. If you can always go back to a puppeteer's arm because that arm is going to accelerate to a maximum speed and slow down. Mm. That's, that's one of the reasons why, and I had problems with cinematographers over this, why I pushed um, to shoot my own sequences. And, mm. and I think my best work is in a not so great movie, which, um, which I did a thing about uh, uh, last weekend, which was uh, Life Force, um, where I, I, you know, I got to literally shoot all of my own animatronic sequences. And it was very cost effective too, because you know, when I started doing storyboards, I'm the makeup artist, the cinematographer's going, why is this makeup artist guy doing, you know, is he gonna, he's gonna shoot second, he's gonna tell the cameraman to turn the camera over, you know, that's mindset that they couldn't really, you know, get a, a, a handle on. That was one, part of the problems that I had on, on Highlander that ended up with me not shooting the second unit. But, um, but I, you know, I, I, would, I would sit down with the director and talk about what the scene was and how he saw it. I would explain to him why I felt um, certain sequences were too repetitive and why it cost just as much to do the same thing five times the fifth time, it costs just as much as the first time, but people have already seen it. And I would try to redesign things. If I did a storyboard and you only saw one side of the face, maybe for speed, I'm only gonna paint one side of the face. Um, you know, I, and I would deliver exactly what was on the storyboards. And it would, be, it would be much cheaper, but it would also mean that I knew what I was, designing something for because I was going right. to film it. Right. You have to do, I mean, there's a big difference between I, I worked in the parks and 
done both. And when you're doing a movie, you do what you need to do to get what's in the shot yes. in camera. And you sometimes you use materials that you have lying around to get it done. Uh, but there is, there is a, a, an amount of creativity and thinking outside the box that's necessary to do that. And some people, they just don't have that. And so, you know, you, you have to let somebody do that. I will tell you this. I, I always enjoyed Life Force because I saw it when I was just growing up and I watched it because of that very thing, that it was, it, it had those special effects that I really looked forward to. I watched it when I was a little too young. So it was very, um, how should I say, educational for me. Uh -huh. <laughs> My father saw what I was, he's like, what are you watching? I was like, uh -huh. uh, uh, yeah. Because, you know, it's got some scenes that I don't think nine-year-olds should be watching. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, nine-year-olds <laughs> get to be 12-year-olds. Uh, and That's uh, true. Yeah. yeah. It, it, was, it was an educational movie for me. <laughs> yeah. Well, we grew up in that era of the, these movies from the 70s going into the 80s. And, I mean, such pivotal films. I mean, obviously the Star Wars franchises, but we also had things like Poltergeist and uh, American Werewolf in London and things like that, that sort of changed our view of yes, that was great. what was possible. Yeah. I, I, American Werewolf in London particularly was a, was a movie changing uh, movie. There are, there are that backwards. Ones, if uh, people looking at them now, they don't necessarily recognize uh, just how outside the box a particular movie was at a particular time because within a few years there was a bunch of other people that were copying those and if you oh, don't yeah. know which one was the first one there then then you had to live through it to to experience yeah, you, you do right. yeah i loved yeah. watching that reverse film you know of the hair being pulled through and then you yeah. see it and it's growing out i was like how did they do that um, right that stuff yeah it really did it was uh as inspirational it was uh it it was it was game changing for for me especially to say, you know I, I want to learn how to do that kind of thing but yeah. star wars was something that took akira kurosawa it took you know it was the hidden fortress it took uh flash gordon it took so much stuff from every different thing and then you have the brilliance of george's writing and then you have uh especially uh, Lawrence Kasdan's script for Empire Strikes Back, which is my own personal favorite of all Star Wars. Um, mm -hmm. it, it's got that, and it's got that cliffhanger at the end. You know, it's like a, it was like an old, but what did we call those? You know, you'd, you'd watch the old uh, serial. Saturday the serials, yeah. They were, they were fifteen minute serials that you watched every week. Yeah, the, the Lone on a Ranger. At the cinema, because you didn't have in those days, there weren't televisions that people sat down and watched. Right. I, I remember going to Saturday morning pictures before my grandmother came along with a black and white TV. So, oh, um, we got a we got an earthquake. We're having an earthquake. Oh, yeah. Wow. Okay. I don't see anything shaking. Oh, no, but my lamp over here is shaking, and my oh wow, I'm really dizzy. Ooh. Um, you guys keep talking for a second. I'm going to go see if everybody's all right on, on my okay. end. Okay. Yeah. Uh, for me, Nick, it was one of those things. I started sculpting the head as much as I could one-to-one. -one. You know, I'm guessing on sizes and things like that, but I based it on this size. I know 
this distance to this distance. And so I based it off of that. And then I sculpted it out of monster clay from, from screen. Right. You know, from whatever I could find. Specifically yeah. Empire, though. You know, I was, I kept- Yeah, I well, me back. too. I, you know, for me, in rebuilding Yoda, I wanted to rebuild the, the Empire Strikes Back Yoda, which was the kindly, wise, Yoda, that was the one that I wanted to bring back. I didn't want to bring back the guy who ran around with a lightsaber and hit nope. people. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I, I never understood that. He says, you know, at some point, somebody's like, you don't have a lightsaber. He's like, do I need one? And yeah, then, exactly. And then he's like jumping around, like what happened to the cane uh, and all that stuff? Come I, on. I have to say there are a few holes in the, in the, um, in the Star Wars uh, um, theory. No. No, after all, no. if you, if you can reach out with your hand and zap someone with lightning, what the hell do you need a lightsaber for, right? But hey, yeah. well, I wanted that moment. I don't. I, I, I digress, but I wanted that moment when you know, Darth. Of course, it wasn't all conceived as they want you to believe, but you want that moment when Darth Vader sees three PO and says, "Hey, three PO, is, is that? Wait a minute, is that you?" Master, yeah, yeah, that would be. Fun. be well, he had moment. his memory wiped a couple times. Sure, but yeah, but yeah, well, yeah. Ben, I was saying, I was saying to Nick, I was like, I, I took this on, you know, I, I, I posted pictures of it, and people came out of the woodwork. You can't do that. You can't make that. I said, I'm making it for me. It's, it's how I get inside your head. It's how I get inside how, of who, who said you can't make it. All, all, all kinds of people. That's illegal. You can't make that. And I said, "What are you talking about? This is my fan-made collage. You can't sell, sell that. There's nothing. No. To say. You can't sculpt it. Right. Exactly. Put it in your right? living room. So, but I began to appreciate the genius that was Stewart's design as right. I got into the minutia of exactly like you said the history that is sculpted in that face." There's a lot to be said. George, Uncle George, always encouraged the fans, which was really good because... From the start, I'll, yeah. Yeah, from the start. I mean, that fandom is really what pushes a lot of Star Wars because it's I mean, that the final first, real stuff. You know? yeah. Oh, the whole first gracious, yeah. yeah. But, you I don't know, think uh, Disney understands that, to be honest. No. I'm, I'm no, sorry. I'm, I'm well, sorry. To... Someone, someone told me that they kind of... Uh, um, abandoned the star wars fan clubs i mean they 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 actually don't like at one point i was saying oh there's no star wars fan club in puerto rico for example um you know and i i i was talking to someone about a developer about some stuff down by the port you know and i was saying well why don't we why don't we start the um the Puerto Rican Star Wars fan club. That gives us an excuse to put an X-Wing on the roof, you know? Um, uh, and, uh, and- You need an excuse? Uh, yeah, well, you know, you, you, you don't want Disney to come down and say, why have you got an X-Wing next to right, a crew? Right. You know? um, so, you know, but I understood um, that although there are still some official Star Wars fan clubs that they, they you know, they stopped, you know, banter tracks and, um, you know, all of those things in favor of people just being a member of StarWars.com. 
Well, uh, there's also the thing that now they have Galaxy's Edge in the parks, right? And you used to be able to go into the parks dressed uh, as a character. Right. And Halloween here, we don't have Galaxy's Edge here in Tokyo. And so you can still go into the parks dressed, you know, as a character. As a matter of fact, um, Disney has uh, gotten, I've gone in uh, as Obi-Wan Kenobi a couple of times. They redid uh, their uh, uh, Star Tours. And so I went in and, you know, posed as Obi-Wan Kenobi for, uh, you know, next to Mickey for a couple of times. But uh, you used to be able to go in dressed up in costume. And I don't think they allow you to do that now because people might get confused you know, are That's you staff? Are you a character yeah, exactly. from Galaxy's if you Edge? Are, if you are a visitor mm -hmm. who runs around and accidentally pokes somebody eye, somebody's eye out with the end of your lightsaber, they are fearful that someone will then sue the the park, saying one of their employees poked his eye out with a right. lightsaber. And and one of the strange things, I mean, when you go to the the Star Wars celebrations. Um, Star Wars Celebrations is really all about the cosplayers, all these people who dress up in costume and go out and have fun taking photographs in front of backdrops and various other things. I don't think those people necessarily would get, you know, they want to go to Galaxy's Edge and wander around in their costumes. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's the whole nature of what it is. And I did wonder, um, you know, what the future of, of uh, celebration was going to be if every day of the year you could go to Galaxy's Edge instead of waiting uh, for two years to go to celebration. Um, you know, will it have, still have the same impact? Will it still have the same? Well, the, uh, the, the draw of celebration and Comic-Con that blew it up is the chance to meet people like yourself that we right. wouldn't get to meet otherwise, right. you know? Um, uh, you can go to conventions and meet the the actors, sure, or you could see them, you know. But to get the people behind the scenes and the people who really sort of built that universe, I think that's that's amazing. To be honest, Disney uh, uh, stopped kind of um, really promoting that. You, you what you said, um, one of the two of you, I think it was you. Um, about the, them promoting the characters rather than the project. Right. Um, they don't really want to promote any of the people who made any of the stuff. They, they don't want to uh, connect with that. I, uh, this Yoda that I was working on, I had one of the licensees who talked about wanting to, um, to take the, the work that I'd done and turn it into the ultimate Yoda replica at you know like ten thousand dollars a pop um for something that was you know literally a hundred percent accurate and i said well that's all well and good but you're not going to be able to pay me for for the five years work that i've put into it right. so well, I they're not going to be willing to anyway right no. what i want is is publicity out of it so yeah. that more people get to know me and what i did and how i did it and i'll get my income and the, uh, in a broader sense, um, and Disney wouldn't allow it. Well, I don't know, Derek, if it was like this for you. When I turned in my first portfolio for Disney, one of the things was you had to sign off basically in blood that anything in your portfolio was in their property. Yeah. And uh, yeah. 
I'm going to refrain from saying some of the things that I, I, I really want to say now. But when I turned in my first portfolio, I soon remember thinking, uh, uh, there's some there's some stuff in here that I'm keeping in my portfolio that had never been published outside. But they do that for a reason, right? You when you send in uh, your stuff to Disney, it's the Disney image, and if it becomes personal for each artist, it diminishes the whole, which is what actually drives the the machine forward. And if you want to be part of that machine, then that's what you're signing on to is that you're getting on that train with that engine. And it's yeah. because if you're getting on, that was the thing with Don Bluth. Do you remember Don Bluth? Oh yeah. Nick, I'm not sure if you, he uh, made a great movie called all dogs go to heaven. And he had originally been uh, one of the other animators from Disney. And he was like, I want to, I want to go out on my own. And he did a great job going out on his own, but it didn't last. Uh, Don Bluth animation is, I don't know if anybody knows who it is now. Um, Apparently he's making a comeback. Uh, that would be great. I'd love to see it because, but it's the same thing with um, uh, Miyazaki Howell's son. You know, he wanted to make a movie that was like Ghibli, but not Ghibli. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's good. It's really, really good but it just doesn't have the engine behind it to drive it forward. Exactly. Nothing, you, you can make the best, you can write the best book or paint the greatest painting or make the best movie. If you don't have distribution, then, you know, whoever's got the distribution has got you by the short and curlies. And that's the, <laughs> you know, that's the, that's the end of it, right? Yeah. I, I think that's one of the areas where, um, where things are are evolving. I know that um, through streaming, um, we are you know bypassing cinemas and it giving the opportunity for the the movie distributors to make twice the profit by uh, or or half their prices by not having to share it with the with the movie cinemas. The theaters. Um, mm. But I think that there's also a huge opportunity there for the millions of people who are turned out from universities and never have the opportunity to actually do the job because there aren't enough jobs for all the people that they've trained in university to, to do most of this stuff because universities are in the business of selling courses, not in the business of finding people jobs. Right. And so yeah. consequently, um, most people are now watching their movies and their other stuff on this or on a, a, a tablet. And so all of those people who are being trained to animate and to do various other things are perfectly capable of sitting with their Apple computer or whatever else and making their own programs. All they need is the distribution. So whoever it is that creates a independent Netflix for independent makers will allow all of those people who made something on their Apple computer an outlet to be able to bypass the distributors. 
I think that's why well, YouTube is such a big, big deal yeah. nowadays. Yeah, but you know? YouTube, don't, they don't really get any money out of making it. They get some kudos and they make money out of having lots of people following their, you know, what it's they the make. Advertising. It's the advertising. What you, yeah. want, what you want is something where, you know, every time someone watches your your show, you get 25 cents. Um, right. and, um, and at that point, if enough people have subscribed to, uh, to Netflix or whatever it is, um, then you as an independent maker can make your movie in, in, in 4K or whatever you want to make it in and, um, and not have to worry about being taken to task um, or, or, or uh, we don't want to say, but um, by but being manipulated by the distributors who control whether or not your stuff ever gets seen. The internet is an open area at this moment in time. Who knows what rules and regulations are going to get put on it? They're going oh, to restrict things. Yeah. yeah, we're at a turning point right now. I think in history where there's a a platform. Uh, and if there's not a platform, there's the opportunity for making one. Uh, but uh, there is a really interesting talk on Joe Rogan uh, about how uh, certain tech companies bypass the normal uh, moral moral uh, uh, journey that CEOs go through to become when they become powerful enough, they kind of realize these are the hoops I need to jump through. And then some tech companies suddenly just get thrust into the limelight. And they're like, well, how do we do this? What do we do? And there are questions that come about, you know, morally, philosophically, theologically, uh, socially, that you need to really deal with. Uh, on the other hand, your common everyday maker, people who just want to sit down and make some art, now really have an opportunity to make something, get it out there. And it may not be seen by millions if it's good, uh, People will share it. Just kuchikomi. Uh, how do you say that in English? Uh, a word of mouth. You just have that kind of word of mouth uh, progression. This guy's great. This guy's stuff is great. And you share it with somebody else because that's, it's a very. Uh, yeah, that's all well and good. But, uh, you know, the bottom line is that the guy ends up being a bus driver because he can't make any money out of his great movies. Right. You know, for mm -hmm. him to be able to produce what he's capable of producing, he has to be able to pay the bills while he's doing it. And so you have to have some way that is going to bring someone a, a moderate return for what it is that they, you know, that that it, what it is that they're producing. Um, I, it doesn't have to be enormous. If it's small, so if it's really small, but, but 20 million people subscribe, then suddenly, you know, the, the guy has made a huge success out of, out of his heart and out of his labor. And honestly, I would honestly question when you start talking about CEOs in big companies, I would honestly question some of the moral judgment of some of those people. Oh, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, certainly. Right. Certainly. Well, power corrupts. There's a sort of a median uh, that I've experienced because I came to California as an animator. I was an actor and an artist combined. And then that job sort of dried up. They sent it all overseas. So then I started doing storyboarding and directing and things like that. Um, because in my mind, 
you couldn't be an animator. Well, a friend of mine, Sergio Pablo, said, no, I'm not giving up. I'm going to continue animating. And so he animated a trailer, a short, got a, a crowdfunding, put things on YouTube and on Facebook, Instagram, and then got picked up by Netflix. So he showed them the potentiality of what this project could be, you know, what his vision was. And now it's, uh, it's that movie Klaus, Klaus, mm. Klaus, however yeah. you say it. The, um, the, the Santa Claus movie where with, they, the, with uh, the postman. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a great yeah. movie. As a matter of fact, it's, it's uh, the, the way they shade that 2d animation is yeah. absolutely phenomenal. And, and it was because Netflix saw the germ of the idea. I mean, he right. basically connected the dots for them and then they said, yes, right. let's make that. Yeah. Um, you know, that's, that, that's, it's, it's not an easy road, but, it's a potential it's, yeah, yeah the potential's out there because you know it used to be i've got a great idea and then you take all your stuff and then you pitch it to the studio and the studio goes no or they go yes but we're going to change everything about it yeah i i one I, another thing that's in my book i talk about i say that the two um being an actor and being a screenwriter are exercises in rejection. They, you know, this is, this is where every job, every actor who goes for a job is competing with at least a hundred other actors. So the odds are always a hundred to one against him getting the part. Yep. And, you know, and basically you have to be very thick skinned as a writer. Uh, the you know Dan O'Bannon didn't come up with all those great ideas for all the movies that he made. He 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 made he would became a success with one movie, and then people said, "Well, we have this synopsis. We need someone to turn it into a script." And Dan O'Bannon writes that kind of stuff, and so that Dan is is developing someone else's idea. If you're a great writer with great ideas, taking it to the studio, if it isn't something that, that, is, that they think they would be interested in, they're not even gonna read it, right? And if it is something they're interested in, they might not read it because they don't want you to think that you stole, that they stole your ideas if what's in yours is similar to what's in theirs. I've been in uh, meetings uh, with Disney. I've been in pitch meetings with them and you know, how much can I say on the podcast? But um, it's well known that beep, they have an agenda. Right? You're all beefed <laughs> they, out there. They, they have an agenda. They have a, an idea. They have a, a game plan and an arc that they're following. So yeah, in that moment, when, you know, we did a typical Hollywood. My wife and I went to lunch with them and they said, go pitch. And we're in the middle of a restaurant. And so yeah. I said, okay, I, I want to do this kind of a show. They said, no, no, we don't. I want anything educational right now. We want a quick hit of adrenaline. We want a sugar shock. We want them to come back for more. No continuity. But that could change in a month. Right. Yes. Right. Yeah, there's an old saying, we'll know it when we see it. Uh, oh, as a matter yeah. Of, as, yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, Mike Rowe on How I Heard It has a really great story uh, recently called uh, we'll, know it when we, we'll Know It When We See It. Uh, and it's about... Uh, well, I won't tell you how it's, I, go listen to it. But uh, the, this little boy gets the job because of his attitude. It's kind of the same story as Harrison Ford. He walked in and he was just like, 
you know, I can take this or not. I got a job as a carpenter. I don't really need right, this right, job. Right. And they're like, that's exactly the guy we're looking for. And he got it because that happened to be the kind of character they were looking for. And, you know, a lot of the stuff that happens in the movie for Indiana Jones and for, uh, for uh, Han Solo come about just because that's Harrison Ford's attitude. You know, it's like he feels sick one day. So he shoots the, you know, the swordsman instead of fighting him. Yeah. And, you know, he's like, you know, she says, I love you. And he says, uh, I love you too. I never say that. He's like, I know. And they stick that in the movie. And, you know, it comes out of the character, the personality. And sometimes the things that we make as artists just get made and just become big or whatever, because other people connect to it so well, that's exactly what they were looking for. And they didn't know it until they saw it. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I think uh, sharing a very deep part of you that you don't usually want to show to other people is what kind of creates that. And everybody else kind of goes, I'm not alone in that thought, or that's not just me. Wow, that's really great. Um, sorry, I didn't go off on a tangent there. Nick, I wanted to ask you something. Your museum there, and I know a lot of people are not going to be able to get off the boat, even if, even if the ships start cruising. Would you be interested in doing like a virtual tour just temporarily say, you know, go through a virtual tour, like a 3d version of your museum. And then on that Starnet thing saying, if anybody wants to come see the museum, you know, it's, you know, you get like a little Patreon thing, $1 or whatever. And then boop, you get a link to that, uh, like a ticket. Yeah, I had, actually, I had actually thought about doing like a guided tour of mm. the museum because a lot of the stuff it's not really about the items it's about the the stories that take place yeah. Yeah. the items that's the very nature of what we got here we, we can't compete with the smithsonian for the stuff that they've got in there or, or lucasfilm for all of the props they've got but you know, when you go and you see the, the Wampa, which uh, Graeme Freeborn and I basically built the body of and Stu built the head, um, they, the, you know, it says it's a Wampa. It's from Empire Strikes Back. That's all they know about it. Yeah, there's no story I, behind it, yeah. You know, I, you know, I tell the story about how, you know, we, uh, you know, we needed uh, Wampa fur and we rushed down the high street and bought eight goatskin rugs and uh, came back and slapped them all together. And, you know, it's, it's, those, it's those inside stories that make it what it is. And so, uh, you know, that's really what I try to do in the museum. The museum is all hologram and DVD driven. So it's not like a, uh, it's not like going to a normal museum. It's more like going to a haunted house. That's, cool. um, That's great. Yeah, especially with the alien at the very end that breathes on right? it. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, Nick, we don't want to uh, keep you uh, too long. Uh, I really want to thank you. It, oh, you're Derek, very welcome. Yeah, we, we got to do this again. To be honest, uh, the Starnet, uh, I'm, I'm going to have to uh it it's about three o'clock in the morning for me <laughs> okay Usually, yeah but what we do with what we do with um with starnet is um we we run it on a sunday uh the you know usually about 11 o'clock but it stays there for people anyone who's subscribed and has access into that group 
can right. watch it at any time for the you know over two or three weeks yeah um, so i and i'll a lot of times go back later but i don't get the chat and the yeah, live right. interaction that's yes. really fun it's really fun because derek and i would like go back and forth on the chat be like what's up man <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's, it's fun it's fun to kind of be in there and you know you can yeah. talk to some of the other folks there on and it's that community is really great and i want to suggest to anybody listening that you guys go check that out uh the link will be in the description uh there's so much stuff to see and i mean and i feel hear. you hit on the virtual con before anybody else yes i really do i don't know about that i think though i think a lot of people came up with it along the way i to be honest you know i first started everyone started talking about a virtual con there's no comparison between what you can do you know through a medium like zoom or anything similar to it um that it's never going to capture the spirit of wandering around in your costume and and whoever you bump into you know at a con yeah uh, it's just not going to be uh, it's not going to be the same are you having another tremor there uh no sorry no i was moving my I was writing something make down. Me oh, okay. Right. I, I was going to say, look like you were on the move. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, but but in terms of panels, you know, we can reach out. I, I focus on, on trying to reach to the people that you wouldn't normally find at a con. Right. You know, the right. con, they, they're going to they're going to bring in the headliners and you're going to get a minute while you you pay three hundred dollars for an autograph and get ask one question and move on. Um, or you go and sit in a in a panel. Uh, but I'm trying I'm trying to focus on the makers and the creators and the and the history people. You know, we had, as I say, we had one where I where I brought in the uh, former managing director of 20th Century Fox to talk about the making of Star Wars and other movies he'd made. And, uh, and I also had um, uh, Craig who, who started, who was the, was the first director of fan relations that started Banzer Tracks and um, all okay. of that stuff, about the history of how those things got started, how this, this amazing thing that we all call Star Wars and Lucasfilm, you know, where it came from, because it, it, it certainly wasn't, you know, that, that huge thing when we wandered around in the Moss Eisley Cantina and thought that we were making uh, a movie for teenagers. Right, right. I, I think uh, James Earl Jones didn't even want to be in the credits of the original. I don't think it was that he didn't want. He was a voiceover and he wasn't in the credits for the first two movies. Wow. Ah. Yeah. Well, uh, it was Sir Alec Guinness thought he was going to get typecast. <laughs> no, I don't you think did. he did. You did. I, I don't did. think he did. I spent a lot, uh, quite a lot of that uh of that time talking to uh, Sir Alec because, you know, for me, the thrill of making that movie was working with Alec Guinness, not working with George Lucas. And oh, so, yeah. oh, um, yes. you know, I, I sat and talked to him about all kinds of different things. And I think the bottom line with that was that he thought it was a rather silly superficial movie which most of the crew did i mean honestly this is a this is this is a 1976 movie about gunslingers and wizards in space i mean who was going to take that seriously this is like something out of a kid's comic book 
And so everyone assumed that that was what it was until it became something else. It, it changed the way, it changed the style of movies that were made. Um, but I think, the thing with, I think the thing with Sir Alec was that he made so many movies and played so many different characters that he felt were being overshadowed by this one movie. And so he got, he got uh, almost offended by the fact that he got so much acclaim for this one character, which he kind of knocked off in a very casual fashion. Um, and people in a never went and watched, yeah, The Bridge of the River Kwai. You know, I mean, there's some things that I think artistically he uh he was very proud of and yeah. this was not really one of them uh, go over the river right was it was a really good one but go back even further to the ealing studios movies oh, and yeah, yeah, the lady yeah. killers what? and you know the, all killers. of those old black and white movies that were uh, extraordinary performances do you remember well, what I, was I the name was sort of the I was going to say, what what was the name of the movie where he played like eight of the different eight characters in one movie? Uh, the Kind Hearts and Coronets, he That's did it. that. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's unbelievable. Yeah, I feel like, like he was the anchor star for Star Wars. You know, like they, they, they have those veterans, you know, you have a small... Yeah, low Patrick Stewart in Star right. Trek. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. yeah. Peter yeah. Cushing was, the, was another one because he was a big hammer horror. Right, oh, right, man. Yeah, his yeah. his stuff. Oh, whew. I tell you what, I remember watching Star Wars for the first time. My dad saw Peter Cushing on screen. He was like, "You're kidding me!" <laughs> it's like, no kidding. I was like, "What?" He's like, "Haven't you ever? Don't you remember Dracula?" I'm like, what? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. So, guys, you. we said goodbye twice. I guess yeah. we're going to call it quits for today. And. Um, you, if you want me back to talk about anything else, we'd love sure, that. I'll, love I'd that. be happy yeah. to do it another day. Sounds well, great. That, that would be fantastic. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. It's been an honor. Absolutely. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. <laughs> Having been a, uh, a Comic-Con uh, veteran, I guess, because my wife and I had a booth there for years and uh, we would go, um, we would play a game where we'd say, who are we going to meet this weekend? And we wouldn't go to the hall. No, we wouldn't go to Hall H. We would try to set it up so that we could meet or bump into these people on the floor. And we met people like Ray Harryhausen. We sat with the Kyoto brothers and just talked and chatted with Ray Harryhausen. Yeah, and it was, it was a life-changing moment. You know, we met Adam Savage. We met uh, John Howe, who was one of the designers on, uh, on Lord of the Rings. And he was walking and I said, John, <laughs> You're John Howe. And he says, you recognize me? <laughs> so mm -hmm. I sat and talked with him for a while. And, uh, it, you know, if you guys, once Corona's done, if you can go to these conventions and just be, uh, it, it's a lot of fun to interact with these people. And if you can't, you can go to things uh, yeah. like, like these virtual cons. One of, and my, one of my sponsors is Prop Store. And so... Oh. Um, any convention that they go to, I can go hang out. And, oh, that's and great. I mean, Prop Store, actually, a funny thing, uh, Nick, is uh, Prop Store is right here in Valencia where I live, one mm -hmm. of their warehouses. That's um, right. So I have to be so very careful to, to ignore them as much as I possibly can. Oh, yeah, because you'll go <laughs> by and, you, just, you know, your, your wife's like, what is this bill on the credit card? You say, oh, yeah, I, right, I, I know. It, it, nothing. There's nothing on that bill. <laughs> 
and yeah, I, you know, both of those guys just started out as collectors. Of oh yeah, collectors. yeah. They, 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 this, this, they, they, you know, it was estimated this last last auction that they did, uh, you know, that they were going to turn over six to eight million dollars worth of stuff. The in, stuff they had right? was unbelievable. Right? And they got another one in December. Mm -hmm. The one, the one they did was in Valencia. Uh, oh. yeah, and and they got another one in London in a, in another few weeks. So um, they really are cooking with gas right now. Oh, and I told them, I said, I love you guys and I hate you guys. Yeah. And they said, well, what, well, we get the love, but why do you hate us? And I smiled and I said, because you've made people realize that these things are worth something. I used to be able to get them. Yeah. You know, yeah. Now they cost... Yeah. Hey, I've got this obscure prop from a movie. I bet I could get tons of money for it. Well, I used to be able to just get them, but yeah. right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, well, not just um, not just the props, but the things that go into making the props. You know, like the parts yeah. that you need to. Like I used to be able to go on e eBay and grab these things for cheap. Yeah, yeah, more. Yeah, but uh, such is very life. true. Yep, yeah, yep. such is life. Well, it was Thank a pleasure, you, and I, I look forward to when we can talk to you again. And uh, yeah, thanks for asking me. Oh, oh certainly, but, certainly. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, uh, we'd love to do it again if you ever get the if you ever get the time. Sure, we, we would love to just talk shop. Uh, it's one of the things that we like to do because we're both avid makers, and mm -hmm. and sharing that tradition and passing on sort of a lineage of builders. Um, I, I think that speaks to why we do this and why we do it. And, and to, to, to sort of wrap things up, your vision of encouraging others to reach and grow and build and test the waters they've never been in. I, I, it, it is so much to what inspired this podcast to begin with. It, so it, it really is. It really is. Uh, I want to thank everybody for listening. If you enjoyed uh, what you heard, then make sure you click the links below because uh, there's so much more to hear and find out, especially on Nick's, uh, Nick's Connections. Uh, you've got Facebook okay. and YouTube, the Starnet down below, as well as uh, tune in for next time. Uh, we've always got uh, new guests coming and lots of, lots of fun stuff to share. So thank you all very much. See you next time.